Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a, slam to, a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he, was, and had, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by the knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As beautiful of a passage as Isaiah 53 is, it is ugly. It is ugly. In fact, its ugliness doesn't begin actually in Isaiah 53. If you go back to Isaiah 52, you find a description at the end of that chapter about the visage of that man being marred more than any man, so much so that it seems that he was unrecognizable. And you look at Isaiah 53 and wonder at the 750 years plus or minus that this was prophesied before Jesus ever walked upon the earth. And you wonder about Isaiah 53 about how the Ethiopian nobleman was sitting there in that chariot in Acts chapter 8 and sitting and reading from this passage and then asking the question, I want to know, Philip, is this man speaking about himself or is he speaking about somebody else? There's a number of things as you look at Isaiah 53 that talks about what Jesus bore on the cross. And I've got to tell you, I've looked at Isaiah 53 for years and immediately jumped to the brutality, the pain, the agony of the cross. 
and looked at it and immediately thinking about the suffering and the blood and all of those things that went with it. But I don't think that that's the fulfillment or that's the fullness of what Jesus was bearing, particularly because of this. As you look at the first four verses, particularly, because the first three verses talk about Jesus and his character, about how he grew up as a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground, and about how, uh, how when people saw him, it wasn't like the good-looking, handsome Jesus that you see on the pable, uh, pages of your uh, Bible commentary or on the pages of, of or on the uh, movie screen. It says that he was, by all accounts, ugly. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. And there's a number of things about his physical appearance there in the first three verses that say there wasn't anything that we'd look at this man and say, look at his charisma, look at how I'm drawn to him just by who he is. And in fact, verses four through six, as he transitions, you're going to find the word our and the references to us a number of times, five times the word our in the English language is used there in verses four through six about what he took upon himself for our sake. And what I've always done, as I mentioned, is jump over immediately, verse 4, to talk about the brutality and how Jesus stood before Pilate and he stood before the, 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 the Jewish court and he didn't open his mouth, but like a lamb before the slaughter and a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he kept his mouth shut. But look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. There was more than just the physical suffering that Christ went through on the cross. And what I'd like to do this morning, just for a few moments, is to take us all the way beginning about the time that he began to pray in the garden, all the way to the time that he says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, where he cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit till the time that he physically dies. And note the things that he bore that were sorrows, that were griefs, that he took to the cross. Think with me. I'm going to give you a number of passages, and you can write them down. You can turn to them if you will. But we're going to move relatively quickly through these ten things that I noted about the suffering of Jesus, about what he took to the cross with him that have to do with griefs, and have to do with sorrows. Note these things with me this morning, beginning with this one, the emotional turmoil. Luke chapter 22, verse 44, says that after the Lord's Supper, he led his disciples out into the garden. And you remember that he took those three that were kind of in the inner circle, Peter and James and John, with him just a little bit further. And he said, I want you to sit here and I want you to watch I want you to watch. And he went about a stone's throw further. And the Bible says in Luke 22, verse 44, that he was in agony. He was in agony. The Greek word there has to do with wrestlers. And it has to do with a wrestling competition. We went to dinner last night with Catherine's parents. And on the TVs, you know, sometimes you go to a restaurant, it has the TVs around the side. There was the NCAA championship wrestling. I've never really paid much attention to wrestling, but having this sermon on my mind, I began to look at it. And here's a man who's grappling with another man, and they're trying to pin that man down to the ground so that the match will be over. But just as soon as you think they've got him in this hole that they're not going to be able to let go, all of a sudden the other guy does something. He flips around or he's able to uh, twist just right. And all of a sudden the wrestling match has continued and it goes on. You ever felt like that? You ever had a sleepless night like that? Where you think, all right, I'm going to commit this to God or I'm going to say a prayer and then that's going to be it. I'm just going to stop thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, what are you doing? Five minutes later, you're thinking about it. 
and you think that you've got it pinned and you think that you've got it nailed down and all of a sudden your thoughts twist. Jesus is in agony. Jesus is wrestling with his thoughts and with his fears there in the garden. He is in emotional turmoil, so much so that Luke comments upon his sweat. And he says his, his sweat becomes like great drops of blood dropping down to the ground. He wants us to know how much distress that Jesus is in. There's emotional turmoil. There's agony. There's a wrestling match going on there in the garden. He felt that. He bore that grief. He carried that sorrow. Jesus dealt with disappointment and frustration. You remember that this was the first time that he went, and as he came back, what did he find? Those three, those three men that are closest to him, the three that he gave one simple command, stay here, watch with me. And I wonder about that because I know that Jesus knew all men. I knew Jesus knew what was in man. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says that he didn't need anybody to testify of himself about man because he knew what was in them. But here's Jesus telling these three, I want you to sit here and I want you to watch. Again, he didn't tell them necessarily that we have record of what they were to be watching for. But certainly he knew that there was an angry mob that was already probably forming in Jerusalem and ready to come out and to take him captive. But here's one simple command I want you to watch. Presumably, Jesus wanted to go a stone's throw further and pour out his heart to God. And not to have to have this nagging in the back of his head to say, I know those guys, they're not going to do what I said. But as he pours out his heart, he wants to know that his, his rear is covered, his, his flank is covered, and that this is going to be something that he's got his best men, so to speak, on the job, and he comes back and he finds them sleeping. The Bible says that they were sleeping for sorrow. They were sleeping because uh, there was something in their heart that they couldn't define. They were tired. And Jesus comes back and he says, couldn't you watch one hour? Couldn't you just stay awake and keep your eyes open just for one hour? You put some toothpicks in there. Why, why is it that you're sleeping? Jesus put his confidence in men. And Jesus was disappointed on this occasion. He bore that grief. He bore that sorrow. He bore the loneliness. That is, that band of robbers came out. They came out to arrest him. Luke says, then his disciples... The ones who he had handpicked, the ones who he had chosen, and he, they had followed him for the past three and a half years, the ones that he had uh, slept next to, and whenever they would camp around a campfire, the ones that they would, they, would, uh, they would watch him do those miracles, the ones that probably had a greater faith, so to speak, than anybody else that he could have picked. Luke says, they all, they all, they all forsook him and fled. Five words in Greek to describe a heart-crushing loneliness. To realize there's nobody that's going to stand by you. There's nobody that's going to go with you down this path. They all forsook him and fled. Friend has been defined as somebody who comes in when everybody else goes out. Jesus didn't have a friend as he went through the coming hours. All forsook him and all fled. And the nearest of his disciples were only willing to follow at a distance, so much so that they wouldn't want to be identified with him. We turn to our attention to the only two instances that I'm aware of that the Passion narrative turns its focus away from what Jesus was doing and where he was going and about the suffering that he was enduring at this time. 
And the only two times in the Passion narrative is the end of Luke chapter 20, or sorry, Matthew chapter 26, and the beginning of Matthew chapter 27. The end of Matthew 26 finds a man by the name of Peter going and following at a distance. And even though Peter that very night had said, Lord, even if all are made to forsake you, even if everybody else turns their back on you, I'm never going to turn my back on you. Well, Peter was one of those that fled, see the previous point. But Peter was also there in the court of the high priest where three times he had an opportunity to say, yes, I'm with that man. Yes, I'm one of his disciples. Yes, I know Jesus the Messiah. Yes, I know Jesus the man who's standing trial right now, and every single one of those times he said, I do not know the man, even to the point where the third time he was saying, cursing and swearing, I'm not one of his disciples. There's disownment that Jesus bore to the cross. There's betrayal, because in Luke chapter, or sorry, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, the Bible says that Judas regretted what he'd done Judas regretted what he'd done to the point where he goes back to the ones that had hired him to betray Jesus, to tell them where exactly Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the, in the midst of a city where there's people everywhere for the feast. And Judas says, I know where he is. They say, here's 30 pieces of silver. Judas comes back, and you remember what he said before the high priest, before the council. He said, I have sinned because I betrayed innocent blood. And you expect, you would expect Compassion. I look at this and you would expect that the people of God and especially the high priest, the ones who were supposed to be nearest to God, as it were, would have said, Judas, you know what? We've done wrong too. We should have never instigated this. We should have never done this. We repent with you. Let's see how we can make this right. Instead, instead, they look at Judas and they say, Judas, you were a tool. What's that to us? You see to it yourself. And Judas took that money. He threw that money back in the, te- in the temple. And he ran out and he hung himself for sorrow. The one disciple that nobody would have ever suspected would have betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. John chapter 6 tells us that. Jesus knew. And yet at the same time, can you imagine Jesus letting Judas follow him day after day, recognizing what he was going to do? Jesus bore the grief and carried the sorrow of disownment and betrayal to the cross. Jesus carried the worst forms of injustice. People these days want to talk a lot about justice. There's all kinds of different justice that people feel like they have a right to. And when we look at Jesus and we see exactly the Son of God, the one who had never, ever done anything wrong, nothing ever reprehensible for the eyes of the law, nothing that the law could ever point, put its finger on and say, this is something he's guilty of, he stood. You know, it was against the law for the Jewish council to meet at nighttime. And so instead of taking him before the Sanhedrin, what they did was they took him to the household of uh, the high priest or the father-in-law of the high priest, Annas. And they held a kangaroo court there. And then just as soon as it was morning, they, they, they assembled the council. And the council is there trying to pin down something that they could take to the Romans and say, this man's deserving of death. And you remember Matthew chapter 26 says that they tried to get two testimonies to agree about what Jesus said. And there were not two that would agree. That's a violation of the law of Moses. 
violation of the law of Moses because the law of Moses said you could only have somebody condemned on the basis of two or three witnesses. They didn't have two witnesses, and the two that they had, their testimony didn't agree. And they take this man to Pilate. And Pilate there looks at Jesus, and he knows the only reason why Jesus is standing before him is because of envy. Mark chapter 15. The only reason why this man is, is standing before him is because these people hate this man. And Pilate three times comes out and says, I find no guilt in him. There's nothing this man's done that's worthy of death, that's worthy of condemnation. And yet the Jews, even when they're given a choice... Who do you want running the streets? I'll release to you a a, a prisoner at the feast. You can have Jesus. You can have Barabbas, a man who is there in prison for insurrection and for murder. And can you imagine the surprise on Pilate's face when the people say, give us Barabbas. Let this man be crucified. Jesus knew injustice. Jesus knew the worst form of injustice in the fact that he was without a doubt, innocent in the eyes of the law and innocent in the eyes of God. Yet people hated him so much. And he bore that grief. He carried that sorrow with him to the cross. Jesus bore the physical and the verbal abuse. Both in the council, at the very end after they had already come to the conclusion, this man is not fit to live away with this man, even in that occasion, said they blindfolded him, They struck him with his hands and said, Teacher, tell us who prophesied. Uh, Tell us who hit you. Prophesy. We want to know who was it that hit you. They're playing a game. They're spitting in his face. Spittle. Just liquid for the mouth, isn't it? You spit on the ground sometimes whenever you don't taste something that doesn't taste good. And yet at the same time, if you say, well, that's, that's nothing really. What you're talking about is something that none of us would really be too happy about if I said all right who's going to volunteer this morning to stand back here in the back as people walk by they're going to spit in your face you understand the abuse and the abusive idea of what that is and what Jesus bore there is the verbal abuse that he underwent that he carried the people that were wagging their heads at him the people that were looking at him saying this one's the son of God really this one's this this man There's no way. Physical, verbal abuse. We could turn our attention to the brutality and the fatigue that he underwent. Again, Isaiah 53, this is the first thing that I think about. As Pilate, after having released Barabbas, delivered Jesus over to be scourged. That's a simple word in the English language not a word that we really give much thought to because it's just one word. The Bible doesn't go into any kind of flowery detail or any kind of, uh, of detailed description about what scourging was, but when you know exactly what the Romans would do, they would take a man, they would strip the garment off of his back, they would lean him over a post that was maybe three, three and a half feet tall so that the, back of his, uh, the skin of the back would be stretched. They would tie his hands down so that it would be flayed. You think about sometimes, maybe your mom or your dad say, bend over, right? It's time for your punishment. It's time to bend over. Why is that? So that it stretches the skin so that you can really feel. What the Romans would do is they would take a whip or a thong, a a, a whip of cords, 
And sometimes they would call a cat of nine tails where they would tie in bits of, uh, bits of metal or bits of bone or, or bits of rock into that so that every slash that uh, would put it on the back would come back and it would rip off the skin. A lot of people regarded in the ancient Roman Empire scourging as an act of mercy because it means the crucifixion wouldn't last as long. It means that somebody that's already in that weakened condition wouldn't spend much time on the cross. A lot of people regard it as an act of mercy. But there's Jesus undergoing this scourging. And as if that's not bad enough, there's two more forms of abuse that he's going to have. One of them is that the soldiers are going to take a crown of thorns, they're going to twist it, and they're going to smash it down on his head. Now, the thorns that are estimated are the ones that are, grow native there are thorns that are not like the little rose thorns that we have, but these are long thick thorns, one and a half to maybe two inches long. And twisting that up, those vines, and then smashing that down on the head, that's a form of, uh, of abuse. But then you have the Roman practice that he's going to take this crossbeam, the instrument by which he's going to die, and carry that with him all the way to the point of execution. The Bible says in the book of Mark, that Jesus wasn't able to bear it, so they brought Simon of Cyrene to come and bear it. Interestingly enough, Mark details and says that that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Presumably that Alexander and Rufus were well-known to the church or well-known early Christians. There was something about the crucifixion of Jesus that their father bore the crossbeam of Jesus to the point where he was stretched out on that beam he had his hands and his feet nailed on that beam. And then that beam was raised up and put into a hole in the ground to where Jesus would spend his next six hours agonizing, striving for every breath, every single feeling that he felt was excruciating. That word that we have is from the Latin, out of the cross, excruciatus, out of the pain of the cross. Jesus felt that. Jesus bore the brutality, the violence of what he felt. Jesus bore the shame as they got him out there to Golgotha, the place of the skull. You remember that it said that there were four soldiers that were uh, stationed to guard him, to guard the prisoners. That was common Roman practice. These men were accustomed to death. These men were accustomed to brutality. The cross was just another day in their life. But one of the things that they would do is they would strip them of their garments. The Bible says they stripped him of his robe and they divided that, that garment up. And yet at the same time, his underwear, so to speak, the tunic, what he wore underneath his robes, they saw that that was a beautiful garment, that it was all sewn, it was one piece. And instead of doing tearing it up into four pieces, they decided they were going to roll dice. They were going to cast lots for it to see who got it and got to take it home. I think we underscore, we neglect sometimes, maybe we sanitize it. But the stripping of the garments. Sometimes you see images of Jesus and he's got a loincloth on or he's got something like that. The truth of the matter is that he was most likely completely naked. The last shred of dignity the last shred of humanity taken away from him so that he could hang there as he's dying, naked as the day he was born. 
Jesus no shame. He knew what it was like. And as if that's not bad enough, ever know somebody's got to have the last word? People passing by, looking at him and saying, Aha, you who said you were going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down off the cross. The chief priests, they're not content with just delivering this man over to be crucified. They're standing there and wagging their heads, saying, Now let the king of Israel come down. He saved others. He can't save himself. I don't think we appreciate the nature and sometimes the force of temptations that come at different points in your life. You ever notice how some temptations seem to be stronger no matter what the situation or the situation that you're in? Some temptations are pretty weak depending on who you're around or this, uh, the, the occasion. But I think sometimes the force of temptation comes in when we're really at our weakest point. Do you realize that at any point in this process, that at any point in the process of Jesus going to the cross, at any point in the process of Jesus and his humanity, Jesus makes the statement to Peter, do you not realize that at once I could say a word and my father, my heavenly father, could send 12 legions of angels. We sing he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. And the truth of the matter is, is that this very last moment, as Jesus is hanging there, scourged, brutal, brutalized, having endured all of this up until this point, now here's people who are laughing in his face, if you really are the Son of God. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Even if Jesus had come down from the cross, they wouldn't have believed. That's the nature of hard hearts. But they had to have the last word. And their calloused hearts were on display. Jesus bore that, the callousness of others. Jesus, at the very end, bore death. Tasted death for every man, Hebrews chapter 2. I wonder, you ever think about why Jesus, one of the only times we have recorded in the scripture that Jesus is crying, is sitting there at the grave of Lazarus in John 11, verse 35. Shortest verse in the Bible is what we talk about as far as trivia, uh, trivia goes. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep, do you suppose? Some have speculated and supposed Jesus at that point knew it was going to be more sorrow for Lazarus to bring him back into this world only to experience this all again. Jesus might have wept because he recognized the sorrow of Mary and Martha, dear sisters who absolutely loved Lazarus and absolutely loved Jesus, and the faith of, uh, of them to be able to say, Lord, I know that he's going to rise up the last day. And Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. I wonder if Jesus wept because he recognized that only days from the point where he sat at Lazarus' grave and wept, he recognized there would be people sitting at his grave and weeping. And realizing that as he yielded up his spirit, there were going to be people who wondered if this was the end. The sorrow, the pain, the heartbreak that comes with death. Jesus bore that grief. Jesus bore that sorrow. 
I look at this list and I begin to ask myself some questions. Friends, if I were to take a poll this morning and begin to go around the auditorium, maybe if I were to give you a sheet of paper and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down the absolute worst of human behavior, human emotion. What would you write down? If I were to ask you to, the worst thing that you could ever experience in this life, the worst thing that anybody could ever go through, the thing that you would have a hard time wishing on your worst enemy, what types of things would you put on there? And I feel like it wouldn't be a list that would be very much different than this one. And yes, we could have added some things to it. And yes, we probably take some things and amend them, tweak them, change them around a little bit to say this is probably more along the lines of what he felt. But when I go back and I look back at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. I have to say the necessity of what Jesus went through on the cross is exactly what makes him the greatest savior that we could ever have. Particularly because of these four things and the lesson's yours. Because because of the cross, we have in him an understanding savior. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with us, but was at all points tempted as we were, yet without sin. I love the beauty of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 because it talks about the sympathy of the Savior and the fact that he can feel with us. Friends, if your worst day, if your best day includes any of those things that we just mentioned, any of those 10 things, Jesus knows what's that, what that's like. Jesus has felt with you what you feel Jesus knows exactly what you feel. And what's amazing about that is our culture and its fascination with superheroes. You know one of the problems with superheroes is that those superheroes are often above feeling with us. And the problem comes sometimes is that we look at them and, and to be honest, in, in culture, it's led to the anti-hero, the hero that says, no, I'm not going to save these people. No, I'm not going to do this for these people. Jesus in every single point was tempted just like we are. Jesus knew what it was like to be forsaken. He knew what it was like to have his friends turn his back on him. He knew what it was like to have, to have people that were brut brutalizing him. He knew what injustice was. He knew what all those things were, and he bore those things to the cross so that he could say, I understand. I get it. I feel those things with you because I felt it myself. In the worst possible instance, in the worst possible situation, I felt it. You may say, there's nobody that feels what I feel. There's nobody that knows what I'm going through. But the beautiful thing is, we have a Savior that knows and a Savior that felt it. We have in him a sympathizing Savior. We have in him a compassionate Savior. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost of those who come to God through him. 
in the fact that he always lives or he ever lives to make intercession for them. Again, back to the picture of the high priest. Here's the high priest that sympathizes, but here's the high priest that also his heart goes out to us to feel with us. What's amazing in the study of the gospel accounts is how many times Jesus felt with somebody, how Jesus, his heart was moved with compassion. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has sat by the right hand of God in heaven, making intercession, being our advocate. Whereas he sees us struggle with temptation and struggle with difficulty and struggle with loneliness and struggle with the pain that we deal with in this life, he says, Father, I know what that's like. Father, I feel with this person. And aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that in whatever divine mystery that is, that he's able to explain to the Father exactly what he felt and say, I know what he's going through. I know what she's going through. His heart goes out to us as a compassionate Savior. I love the fact that it reveals Jesus as a patient Savior. A patient Savior. Any point in the process, any point, that Jesus said, enough is enough. Father, send the angels. Now. Do it now. Destroy these people. Destroy them. Kill them all. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Father, take care of it. You know what? God would have been completely just to do that. And yet the fact that Jesus was able to close his mouth, the fact that Jesus was able to allow these things to happen to him, recognizing it as Isaiah 53 would dictate to us the exaltation that would follow, the glory that would follow. And we look around at our world today and we say, Lord, don't you see the loneliness? Don't you see the injustice? Don't you see the emotional turmoil, the wrestling that people are going through? Don't you see the way that people are forsaking one another? Don't you see the worst forms of injustice? Don't you see all these things? God, why haven't you done anything about that? God, where is Jesus? Where's the promise of his coming? It's the exact question that people were asking in 2 Peter chapter 3. They're doing it in a mocking way. Where's the promise of his coming? Where's Jesus? And the answer resoundingly, as Peter gives it, Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is patient, long-suffering towards us, not wanting any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, the same patience that allowed God or allowed you to have time to obey the gospel is the same patience that God is exercising now because he doesn't want anybody, he doesn't want anybody, he doesn't want anybody to have to face him in the judgment unprepared. The crucifixion revealed the patience of Jesus and the long-suffering even to the point of death, even the death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2. It reveals him to be a wonderful Savior, an awesome Savior. So much so, brothers and sisters, that have we sung these songs that Clay has led us in about the cross this morning, I hope that you realize that in Christ alone my hope is found that you'll cling to that old rugged cross, that you, at every breath, with everything that you say, will say, hallelujah, what a savior. Because God gave us exactly what we needed, exactly when we needed it. 
And Jesus Christ is able to take all of the hurts and all of the pains and all of the heartaches and he bore all of those things and he's able to say, I understand. I appreciate. And I still love you. What an awesome Savior. And brothers and sisters, if you don't know him this morning, it's only through faith, repentance, and baptism that you can get to know him, that you can come to the Father through him. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, he who confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven as holy angels. Jesus says that we have a responsibility to repent, to turn away from our sins, to accept his sacrifice as Savior. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Do you need him this morning? If you do, there's no greater time to respond to the invitation than right now as we stand and sing.